Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? That's what I figured you felt like. You know, football season has started, and there are just various levels of sadness in all of our hearts this morning. I was like so excited. I literally have been living for this day for so long, and I, I, I just smoked a pork shoulder all day long. I mean, that starts very early in the morning, and your hope just builds towards just an incredible day of football, and every Louisiana team was on television, and I had them all set up to just flick between every channel, and just one by one, I watched my hopes dashed into pieces, and, and I was very sad. I was very sad, and I know that some of you are very happy today, and that's your problem. The rest of us are sad, but in all seriousness, there are various levels of sadness, and and we know that in life there are sad things, that, and all of them seem to be hinged upon us not getting something that we dearly long for. Some things are not that important, like a football game, and, and I, I joke about that this morning. But really, we come to a text that is a very, very hard, heavy text. And I've been sitting in this sadness with Hannah all week or a couple of weeks now, praying and praying for our people and the sadness that, that we experience, and especially anyone who's in a, a similar situation. If you remember that uh, last week we learned this book was written to a very sad people, Israel. They were, they were losing hope. They had a sense that there was no hope for their future. They, they lived, the, the book was written about King about Samuel and King Saul and King David, but it was written after the failure of those kings. And so all of their life is in shambles. All of their hope has been dashed, much as, as Granger just read about Israel's state, uh, that they lived in the consequences of their sin as a divided kingdom in exile, and, and all their hopes have been dashed, and they are in a very sad situation. And so God, in his grace, writes this book for them to have hope, to restore hope. And so the book of Samuel is where we are. We did an intro last week. But if you remember, it was written to a people who were going through some extreme uh, sadness. And so it's no surprise that we open. We find that instead of finding a character named Samuel as we open, we find his mother, Hannah. And Hannah is a picture of Israel. She's a real person, and her life really took place. But in God's literary genius, we see that Hannah becomes, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, a model or a type or a picture of Israel. And really, we find it's a picture of all of our own lives. That here, we will see, is a woman who is tremendously sad because her expectations, her hopes, she's fear, she's losing hope for her future and all her dreams coming true. But what we're going to see is that God restores her hope, restores her joy. And so we're going to follow in this text in chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20, and we're going to travel on a journey with Hannah from sadness to joy. And we're going to walk with Hannah through this journey in these 20 verses. And we're going to see, we're going to come up with four stages that she goes through on her journey from sadness, extreme sadness, to joy. And my prayer is that you are greatly encouraged because 
there are things that are really, really heavy in life that are no joking matter. Some of those things, we, we get really sad because we're, we're losing hope, because maybe we've brought some things upon ourselves, and we can kind of understand that we kind of deserve this because of the decisions we've made. And, and there's a great deal of sadness that we experience as we just face the consequences of, of life and decisions we've made. And there's a sadness in there that I want you to find that, that the Lord has joy for you in the midst of that. But then there are those things, perhaps the most difficult, which is through, through nothing that you can identify that you contributed to the problem. It's just the Lord's will for your life. And something that you dearly long for is, is just not so far. There seems to be no plans that God has for you to have something that you really long for. Maybe it's a, a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe you're struggling with infertility just like Hannah. These are difficult, difficult, tragic sadness that goes into our hearts. Maybe it's a, a wayward child that, or some, someone we care so deeply about we just don't have the power to fix. And it just brings tremendous sadness. That's where we are today. My prayer is, I suspect many of you, of us, are in that, some form of that sadness. My prayer is that we will journey together with Hannah, from sadness through these, like, through these stages all the way to joy. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we study Hannah's journey to joy. Would you restore our hearts to joy in Jesus? Replace our dejection with rejoicing. Lord, by the power of your spirit, as we behold Christ in the pages of your scripture, open our hearts to see the truths the, re- the truths that bring joy to our heart that are revealed only in Christ in the midst of our suffering and sadness. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, Hannah goes through four stages on her journey to joy. The first stage, as we've already admitted or seen, is sadness. Let's look at Hannah's sadness and I see this in verses 1 through 7. I've learned that in, over the years, if you just pronounce these names with confidence, everyone assumes that you got it right. So I'm just going to go with that. There, are, there was a certain man of Remathim Zophim. That is clearly right, the way I said that. Of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuth and Ephratite. Now, this man, we'll call him Elk, all right? Elk had two wives. Now, anytime you read that, you kind of go, wait, what? Is that, was that okay back then? No, it wasn't. It was norm, but it was not God's plan. But it's not dealt with in this passage, so when it's just mentioned, it kind of almost sounds like that was okay. Well, it wasn't. So he had two wives, and most likely he had a second wife because the first wife was not able to have children. And so he went and got a second wife in order to provide those needs in their day, which were quite unique, but still doesn't justify the decision. It sounds a lot like Abraham. Abraham and Sarah did the same thing, didn't take a wife, but took matters into their own hands to try to solve the problem of infertility. And that was not the right move, though it was recorded in scriptures. It says about the wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, 
but Hannah had no children. And so right here at the front of the story, we have a very difficult situation being presented in our, in our text. In verse 3, it says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now remember, pause there. Remember what we saw last week that the book of Samuel is doing for us? is The main idea is hope in the midst of your tragic, seemingly hopeless situation is found in just simply looking toward God's promised son and in the meantime, trusting and obeying him. And we said his word was the Bible. And in Deuteronomy, we saw a lot of instructions that God gave Israel in their Bible. When you go into the land, here's my word, just simply trust and obey me. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, God said that they should seek the Lord at the place where he tells them that that should be where they worship and that they should go up once a year to worship in that place. So here we see that's exactly what Elk is leading his family to do, to go up to the place of worship year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice Notice the title here, first use in the, in the Bible, the Lord of hosts. That's not an accident. That is a very purposeful statement. The title inserted by the author to the reader, the Lord of hosts. The Lord, this is like the Lord of hosts. That's a title referring to the Lord with all authority. All power, all the armies, all the power, all the might. That's just the Lord they went to worship as they are in this very difficult situation which is riddling their hearts with sadness. Now, when they went to Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli were, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord. Now, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, so this is when the, when the husband of Hannah and and his other wife and this family is sacrificing, worshiping, obeying the scriptures, doing what God's told him to do, he would have to do something as a part of this worship. He would sacrifice, and then he would give out food. At, that was part of their, their prescribed method of worship. It would be a celebration feast. They would sacrifice to the Lord, and then they would have a feast of what they sacrificed, roasted lamb and, and meat, which was not like something you took for granted. This was a big deal, an exciting day. But he would have to distribute the food to the two wives according to the size of their family. So it says that he gave Hannah, or he gave uh, Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters... Big stack of food to Panina. But then to Hannah, who had no children, he did give her a double portion, but he didn't give her a big old stack of food for all the kids because she had none. And so to go to, to, go to worship and do this every year was just a constant reminder of her pain. And notice in verse 5, he gave to Hannah a double portion because he loved her. Listen to how the author 
describes it, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, anytime we describe a situation, we can present it from many different various perspectives. He could have said, though she's struggling with infertility. That's kind of from a man perspective. But he's intentionally saying, no, this is the Lord. The Lord's perspective, God's perspective on this. The Lord has closed her womb. So here she is, following the leadership of her godly husband to let us worship the Lord. And every time I worship, it's just a reminder that you, Lord, have not granted my greatest heart's desire. And you want me to come in here and worship you. Anybody feel that way this morning? It's a very sad situation. We can all connect with her pain. And no, this is hard. And is it, as if that's not enough in verse 6, her rival, Panina, I think that name's gotten on my nerves this week. Panina. Her rival, Panina, is provoking her. And that word provoke is the same word that carries with it the roar of the thunder in a storm. Panina is creating a storm of anguish in Hannah's heart. And Hannah's emotions. And she's got to live with her. She's not even supposed to be here. And yet God has given her the children. And so she is provoked grievously to irritate her. This is not an accident. This is not poor Panina's just doing her thing. It's not her fault that she had children. No, she is intentionally rubbing salt into the wound of Hannah. In verse 6, irritating her. Why? Again, because the Lord had closed her womb. Authors intentionally repeated that here. The Lord is over this, in this. We don't like to think that way. The author's forcing you to think that way. He repeats it. The Lord closed her womb. Let's be clear. The Lord closed her womb. And so it went on, verse 7, year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, what did Hannah do? She wept. And she did not eat. Whew. Sit on that for a couple weeks and then sing those songs that we just sang. And it just, it's like, praise God in the midst of the suffering. So Hannah, Hannah is sad. This is stage one. Hannah's deep sadness. She's desperately grieving her desire to have children, a good desire. That's a godly desire. That's a desire that God says, I'm going to fill the earth with my glory. How? One of the main ways is through a husband and a wife coming together and having children and raising them to worship the Lord. And yet God has chosen Hannah not able to participate. And God has 
called her to come to the house of worship and to worship the same God who has closed her womb. And children were massively important in their day, similar as they are in us, perhaps for different reasons, but in their society, children were a massive important of their society, their culture, that for them to have numerous children was, a, was necessary also to be, it was an agricultural community, they had to work the farm, they had to provide for a living, and the more children they had, the more resources and money they had, income they had, the more status they had, the, the also provide uh, the family name continuing on, and it also meant that the more children that the children of Israel, the families of Israel had, the larger the nation they were, the larger armies they had, the stronger the nation they were, and so to have children also meant that they didn't have social security or 401k plans, the kids provided for the parents during retirement, I think we strongly bring that back. Amen? All right. And, and, and so children were a big deal. And to not have children meant to not have status, not have security, not have safety, not have stability. This was a huge deal in their culture. It basically puts Hannah at the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of status in society. Not to mention her personal desires. And she has absolutely zero control over this. She can't fix it. I know you have your own version of this. And some people say, yeah, well, that's, it is good to have perspective to say, yeah, that I, I, it is comforting to know I'm not in that same situation. But as someone said to me a few weeks ago, you know, they're going through something and they said, well, I'm not in Afghanistan. And I was like, yeah, but you're not in Afghanistan. This is your real struggle. So it's okay to say, I'm sad over my struggle. That is the stage one. And I want you to know God through this text is going to say, he's going to say, I'm with you. I hear you. I'm listening. I know you're sad. It's Hannah's sadness, stage one. Stage two, we see, is in verse eight. I'm going to say Hannah's substitute for parallel structural, but actually it should be said Hannah's potential substitute because I'm not real sure, but let's look at verse eight. Here's a potential substitute for Hannah. I'll explain in just a second. And Elk, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? It'd been great if he had stopped there. Then he says, am I not more to you than ten sons? No, you're not. I learned this when my nest was emptied. That sounds exactly like what I said to Dana. Why do you weep? I'm still here. And she said, that's the problem. Seriously, we see here Elk is a potential substitute savior in the text. He's, he's saying, I want to fix you, husbands. Don't we just, I just want to fix her. She's like, don't fix me, just listen to me. 
he's potentially saying, listen, aren't I not worth more? Can't I fulfill your heart's desires? I know you have these deep longings for something, and I just want to be enough to satisfy your heart's desires. That's a potential substitute savior. And no husband can fill that role. No spouse can fulfill that role. No thing can fulfill that role. So Hannah may have been idolizing having children. A heart idol is anything that becomes such an unhealthy craving of our heart or such an unhealthy longing that it causes us to doubt the goodness of God or to hinder our ability to worship God as good or, or to be okay without it, to say that I, I just, life's not worth living without this thing or this person or this solution. Those are all ways to kind of examine your heart and say, has this become an unhealthy issue in my life that I, I've exalted it to a, a level beyond what's appropriate? Those are what idols are. They're substitutes. And people, when we are struggling with something we can't have, in this case, her husband becomes a potential substitute savior. And we oftentimes replace, I mean, I've seen people with addictions who say, I absolutely can't quit drinking because they're, they're, they're drowning and they're putting their hope that's become their savior, their substitute savior is to just numb the pain and then go into casinos and become, I can't stop gambling, and yet liquor is flowing free, and they don't participate in the liquor because they've substituted one God for another. And we do our own versions of this all the time, that I, I just would be okay if I had this, I get that, I'm not okay. Well, now if I just had this. And so here we see... Elkanah is her potential substitute savior. Perhaps she was idolizing her children and saying, I, I want status in the community. I want security. I want what I want, and I'm just not okay. But I tend to think that it's not quite that bad for her, though it seems to be at least a possibility in the text. We tend to turn God's good gifts into our gods. If I just had this which would be a gift, but then we turn it into a God, that if I just had this, then I would be okay. Can we be okay without that? Is that our source of joy, happiness, contentment, peace, satisfaction? Instead, we need to enter into stage three, which we find Hannah go into, which is surrender. Stage three is surrender. We see her deep sadness, which leads to a potential substitute, but stage three is where we start to say, okay, no, I need to surrender, and that's what we see Hannah doing in verse nine. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, worship, Hannah rose, and this is a big turning point in the text. This is the, the lifting up of Hannah. She is from the deepest, darkest hole of despair and depression and sadness, and it says, there's something that happened that Hannah rose from the place of worship. 
Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost. So you have the lowly of lowlies, Hannah, and lowest of status. And you've got the highest status of Eli in his position, sitting at the place of power. And we see there's a contrast in the two that God is exalting the humble, sad Hannah and bringing down Eli in his sin. That comes later. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed with the the rolling thunders of the storms of her emotions that had been provoked by her other the other woman in her life and prayed. She prayed. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And then she vowed a vow. And she said, O Lord of hosts, this is the full surrender. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. Listen to the words of what she's praying. Lord, do you know I'm hurting? If you will look upon my afflictions and know that I'm hurting, if you will remember me, Lord, don't forget me. If you will remember me and not forget me, your servant. But will give to your servant a son, then I will give him back to you. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So pause there. Hannah doesn't turn to her husband as her savior. Hannah surrenders it all to the Lord, and she in the place of worship, decides, I have got to surrender this to the Lord. That is battle spiritual warfare at the feet of Jesus. And it's only then that she is lifted up. And what she's saying is a Nazarite vow, which was something we see in, the pre, in their Bible that said, if you make a vow, keep it. And... The Nazarite vow was giving their child to the full ministry of, the, of God for, all, for a period. And she chose for all of his life. I surrender. He's yours. And a part of that vow was no cutting of the hair. Samson was a Nazarite vow. She could have said, I'll give him to you for this season. And she says, no, I, I surrender, Lord. If you bless me with a child, I will give them to you in service of your purposes. What she decided as she was weeping and pouring her her tears and her guts out in worship and prayer was, God, you're worth more than my dream of a son. Perhaps the motive for her son has changed from Lord, I want a son to make me whole. I want a son to make me happy. I want a son so I'll feel content. I want a son so I'll feel safe and stable and secure and I'll have status. Perhaps she went from those motives to saying, Lord, I want a son only if it is for your glory. And so I give my son to you if you choose to give me a son. He will serve you all the days of your life instead of serving me. At this point, she has no idea the Lord's answer to this prayer, but she is in a picture of full surrender. 
She rose up in the midst of her suffering. This is what God's calling us to do with this text. To be brought low, surrender, and let him lift us up to joy. Sadness, stage one. Stage two as a potential substitute God or substitute Savior. Stage three was full surrender brought all the way to the bottom. Finally, we see supplication, the final stage, supplication. Look at verse 12. We've already seen her laying and supplication is making requests to the Lord, praying to the Lord. We've already been seeing her. She's laying down low. She's at the feet of the Lord and she is saying, weeping and pouring her heart out to the Lord. And in verse 12, she continues praying before the Lord. And Eli, this one of power, is pictured as one who doesn't have great discernment. Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart. She's praying in her heart, but her, her lips are moving just, just silently. She's praying in silent, but her lips are moving. And this is what she's doing, and she's weeping and and. And her lips were moving and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Well, that's great, Eli. Good job. While Hannah, her name meaning woman of grace, is presented as a woman of no status, but she's being exalted in her tremendous faith in the Lord, Eli is presented as one with tremendous status and authority, but one who lacks spiritual discernment, judging outwardly only based on outward appearance and Eli said to her how long will you go on being drunk woman put your wine away from you but Hannah answered no my lord I am a woman troubled in spirit I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink I have been pouring my soul out before the Lord great model of of prayer and supplication asking of the Lord pray Lord Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. This is the cry of her heart, that she might not be viewed as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. What a statement. She's praying and pouring her heart out with great anxiety and vexation. She's been provoked both by this woman and by the Lord's Sovereign will for her life. That's what we must do. We must pour our soul out to the Lord in our sadness, in our grieving, with, in our anxiety, in our vexation. Just be honest to the Lord. Do you hear the difference between Hannah's prayer and pious prayer of, of religion? This is going to... God in relationship and just being honest and saying, I'm struggling. And then Eli answered, well, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. It feels so rote religious to me. Go in peace, woman. And here she is so authentic. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went away. She wasn't eating and she was sad. Now she went away she ate and her face was no longer sad and she doesn't know the answer to the prayer yet God has met her in her sadness she has been reminded of his goodness and his glory and she has been lifted up by the Lord let it be in the hearts of our people Lord 
And then verse 19 <clears throat> tells us they rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. They had relations and the Lord remembered her. What a beautiful phrase. The Lord remembered her. Lord, don't forget me. Remember me. The Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The Lord lifted her up out of her darkness. What did she do? She trusted and obeyed the Lord. This is what we're called to do in our sadness. Supplication with an attitude of full surrender. Israel's story, this Hannah's story is a picture of Israel's story. They were desperately longing for a son. They thought it was David, and he has not come. And he is the one who restored. And then he, God provides hope through a son born to another barren woman named Mary. And his name is Jesus. So this is our story. And what I want to show you is that when the son arrived, we, are, we realize in the story all the things that she was praying for were answered. Lord, don't forget me. Lord, remember me. Lord, know my pain. Know my sorrow. And what I want to do is very briefly go back and I want to give you five truths that reveals, are revealed in Jesus and I hope you write these down. And this is what you cling to in your own version of this story. Five truths that are revealed in the arrival of the Son, Jesus, that gives you the ability to persevere through your sadness and your suffering. Number one, God is sovereign over your suffering. In verse 5 and in verse 6, we are told the Lord is sovereign over your suffering. He had a great plan. He had a perfect plan. And that was to bring Samuel to her and have him serve the Lord. And that the Lord would use Samuel in mighty powerful way that would lead to Christ. You don't know the plan God has in your suffering. And I don't know. I know that doesn't make it just go away. But it should give you Something to cling to in the midst of your suffering. Number two, God remembers you in your suffering. Lord, remember me, the Lord says in the text. He remembered her. In verse 11. And then we see in Hebrews 4, 15, Jesus entered into our suffering so that you can know when you suffer. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. The Lord remembers you in your suffering. Number three, God loves you and he gives you worth. In Christ, you're not worthless. She was like, oh, I don't, don't consider me worthless. You are not worthless because you don't have what you're longing for. You have value in Christ. He has given you the greatest treasure of greatest value in Christ if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior. Fourth truth, God hears your petitions. She said, oh, hear me. Here are my petitions. And we see he does hear her petitions. The Lord does hear your petitions, though they go seemingly unanswered as if he's deaf and he doesn't hear you. It's not that he has a better plan. He hears your petitions. We get that from verse 17. In verse 18, we realize that God greatly favors you. She says, oh Lord, favor me. God greatly favors you 
in Christ. In Ephesians 3.14, we see knowing his love for us is what sustains us in the midst of our sufferings. I want to invite you to to stand and allow me to pray this prayer over you from Ephesians 3, that you would know how much God favors you in Christ, that you would know how much he loves you. Join me in prayer. Father God, I pray with Paul, it is for this reason that I bow my knees before you, Holy Father. You from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Lord, we pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you may grant that our people are strengthened with power through your spirit, strengthening them in their inner being, in their sadness, in their suffering. Lord, be their strength so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth of his love for you, what is the length of his love for you, what is the height of his love for you, what is the depth of his love for you, though he has not granted you your heart's desire for something other than Christ, he has granted you Christ. And you should know that he loves you in Christ. And I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That the Spirit may fill you with all the fullness of God. And I pray now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we would ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To him, to our God, to our Savior Jesus Christ be glory in the church forever and ever. And all